By way of the not-for-profit mainframe studios at 900 Keo Way in downtown Des Moines, this is 900 Views, a podcast about building community through the arts as we build an arts community. I'm your host, Pat Bodie. Today, I'm at the lovely Indianola home of Steve Rose and his wife, Mary Jones, who happens to be an Iowa Arts Fellow. Steve's a Nebraska native who moved to Iowa in 1995, fishes for bass, bicycles, and rights. He also builds community, as he recently coordinated 14 poets to read at Zanzibar's coffee adventure nearly every day of Art Week. Steve's Professor Emeritus of Teacher Education at Simpson College. His work, writing work that is, has appeared in many publications, the Midwestern Review, the Journal of Medical Literature, Dime Bag of Poetry, and Lyrical Iowa. He has two published poetry books, 2014 Hard Papas and 2017's Nebraska and Other States. Now, when you kind of promoted, if you will, those readings at Zanzibar's Coffee Adventure, you put a line in that says, this is not your old English teacher's poetry. Why did you do that? What's the meaning of, of that? Well, it, it's almost an AA thing. Having been an old English teacher and having it early, at least in my career, kind of felt like that was sacred text and should be treated as sacred text rather than a scream. Uh, I want people to be aware that it, this would not be the sort of rigid, tightly versed, uh, prim and proper sort of thing. Hopefully people will get up there and laugh and giggle and maybe fart and, uh, <laughs> you know, be troubadours of the arts. I love that phrase, troubadours of the arts. Uh, what do you mean by that? Well, I'm hoping that poetry was the first li- first music. I'm convinced of that. I mean, we don't have a direct record, but we started talking. We started hearing rhythms. We were hearing rhythms. We were beating drums. Maybe before we talked, certainly before we wrote from you know, what we know of archaeology. So why not celebrate that first music? You know, why not, you know, go back to our first selves. So when you do that, how do you use that as a tool for kind of creating some level of connection between the poet and the community, vice versa? Um, Hopefully the work itself is accessible. You know, the old English teacher, let me tell you what you just read sort of thing. Uh, It's just anathematic to good literature on any level or any sort. But... You know, hopefully, even if you don't get every metaphor, even if you don't get every line, you get a strong feel because of the presentation of the poetry, the enthusiasm of the poet. Um, you know, hopefully these poets will act like bards. <laughs> so how do you select poets for an event like uh, occurred at Zanzibar's Coffee Adventure? This year, highly unscientifically, uh, I selected me. <laughs> I know I know my work, and I kind of like it. Uh, and um, I, I was actually recruited with that understanding by some people involved in Arts Week. And they said, you know, go find some other people. I identified a couple people I knew as as people who would be both good poets and good readers of their poetry. Uh, I very unscientifically asked a couple other people, people like that, who they would recommend. 
uh, put together lists, sent out invitations, uh, took those folks who were willing to do that. Uh, I was amazed. I thought I would get maybe a 50-50, and uh, I ended up uh, having to turn people down at the end. So people are eager to participate. And what do you think is the eagerness of that participation, just wanting to get their work out there, or is it something a little bit more deeper than that? Well, I think that's deep enough. I mean, you, you write to communicate, you write to express, you write because you hopefully you can turn the world on to something that you've noticed. So, for God's sakes, you better want to read it. You better want people to read your books. But someone reading my book is, is kind of like, you know, taking in the bathroom, you know, whereas sitting down and hearing me read it to them is like sitting at the dinner table where we trade and there's maybe even um, eye contact between us, you know. Poetry was meant to be heard, and I would argue meant to be seen as it's being read. Well, sorry about that because this is an audio-only podcast, but um, without the eye contact, can you pretend you're at the dinner table and read a piece for us? Sure. And what are you going to be reading? I am reading a poem that I've not published yet that just uh, finished about a month ago, workshop, called The Brood Cows. And I don't like a lot of preface to uh, stuff I'm going to read, but I do spend my life on a bicycle whenever it's warm this time of year, and I am blessed by a herd of uh, shorthorn cows along the nature trail that runs between here and Carlisle, about halfway down the road. And uh, so, The Brood Cows had been moved to the creek pasture. Being shorthorns, that was a simple feat. They stand or lie still, almost ceramic, tails limp. This spring's horseflies still larvae. Their barrel bellies heave, heavy with calf. One stub-tailed piebald stands, tautens, drops offal by the pound. Her calf will soon follow. They're pink in their rare parts, labia stretching like the wings of a moss, still crapped in chrysalis. A roan stands, slack-sided on a hill. Above her, a white calf gambles, a bull, ivory and pink like a plum blossom, dancing on newfound lakes, thinking he's Christ. Below the piebald cow strains, ribs spreading like springs, a stippled calf slides out, anointed by her mother's oil, then tongue dry. Her eyes are ringed, one black, one brown, the pasture jester. The pasture jester. <laughs> That's beautiful. It's got a wonderful rhythm to it. A lot of power in those in those images. They're all based in, in part on your bicycling experiences across the landscape then. Well, yeah, and uh, again, I was a ranch boy or grew up a wannabe ranch boy on the Platte Valley River Valley and was involved with livestock operations. So, you know, there was a lot of attention I had drawn towards livestock that wouldn't happen on a bicycle. You know, you, you cheat there. Uh, and as far as you made the comment about rhythm, I want to talk about that. You know, the poem is very carefully designed on, on, the, on the paper, line breaks and whatnot. What I just read, or the way it sounded like, does not really reflect those lines. You find those rhythms. It's, it's like playing jazz rather than, as opposed to just seeing the notes. And it's always kind of funny. I'm going, oh, well, wow, you put a pause there, huh? I, I guess that works. Uh, so, I, and again, parallel to jazz, I think a lot of jazz musicians are, are blowing their horns or whatever and go, holy smokes, I didn't know I could make it sound that way. 
And I think you can do that with poetry orally also. I kind of want to turn our attention for a moment to this concept of uh, the Iowa landscape. And when I think about uh, community building, I've often said, and I think I said it to Crystal Stone just last week, we talked about this a little bit, uh, the importance of our environment. Uh, And if you don't have a great, healthy environment, how can you have uh, a healthy community? Mm -hmm. You come from a pretty strongly rural background. Uh, You've been living for a long time in Indianola. Your wife comes from Chicago. Can you wax philosophical for just a moment on how the arts can help bridge some of this rural-urban alleged divide we have and improve the health of our environment? It's a weighty, heavy question, but I'm trying to work conservation into this podcast, by golly, and I think you might be the guy to do it. Well, I'm going to be a little bit of a populist here. You know, Des Moines hardly is New York City, but we sometimes it acts like it. You need to get out of New York City slash Des Moines. You know, you need to bring the arts to Indianola and Newton and some of the other non-suburb communities around there. Uh, you know, we, we have kind of this, um, you know, Berkeley and Chicago, Iowa City and Des Moines. So I, I think there's a real elitism in terms of, of intellectual and political movements in general that, that we need to shake. When you start talking to the average Joe about where his dog can walk, where his kids can play, where the fish are still safe to eat, that's going to hit Joe or Jane where they live. Those sort of environmental issues matter to them on a direct level. You know, you start talking to them about the ozone and and how... uh, well, what was the recent um, article in the Des Moines Register about how much poop we produce? Mm-hmm. They might find that amusing, but they don't find that moving. So we need to take those things and make them direct to their personal experience, even though the long-term things are what we're really after in terms of the environment. But most people are, are you know, I, I forget the poet when he talks about dogs scratching their innocent behinds upon, you know, a pole, you know. Most of us are like that, too. We're more concerned about the itch right now than we are about what's, you know, down the road. Does your writing, your poetry, or that of others that you know of uh, close to you, do you see them doing work that can help do what you just described? Is is poetry a, a, a pathway to that kind of well, if, okay. connection? Okay. Again, long way around. You think about all the movies that were made in the 60s that portrayed civil rights issues about African Americans and how much impact that stuff had upon our attitude. Uh, You go in the 70s and 80s and and say the same thing about people who are not heterosexual and how portrayal of those people as being heroic and sympathetic characters changed political opinion. Yeah, I think my poetry and a lot of other poetry does that because I celebrate nature a lot. The poem you just heard you know, although it has a domestic creature involved. Uh, I have a lot of poems about fishing. Um, you know, uh, one, one analogy where a bass jumps up with a, a fishing lure like a spent cigar in his mouth. Now, I'm, I'm rather fond of that, and I'm rather fond of cigars for that matter. <laughs> you know, and I think if the average Joe heard that, he would have an inner, at least empathy with that person. So hit them where they live. Hit them where their dog poops. You know, tell them when the Methodist church over here sprays their yard to keep their grass perfectly green, 
my dog shouldn't lower his behind to be near that grass. Um, again. Well, well, I want to throw a little quote at you. Okay. That when I was looking looking you up mm-hmm. uh, online, uh, I found this Art on the Prairie 2018 piece in which you, you participated in, and there was um, a headline, if you will, a quote mm-hmm. at the top of that that said, uh, it's by Percy, and I'm not sure how to pronounce the middle name, Shelley. Percy, Percy Blythe Shelley. Okay. Uh, it's, it's, it was spelled weird, so I didn't understand. At any rate, the quote is, uh, Poets are the unacknowledged legislators of the world. Would you agree with that, and what does it, what does it mean to you? I would broaden the definition of poets to include those who present art and music. And music is just, well, it's not exactly poetry, but it has lyrics and those lyrics be ex- are expanded by the music. So, you know, I, I view Bob Dylan as one of the great spoken or sung word poets of our history. And um, Paul Simon, and I could go on and list of old men, old, um, people, people I'm thinking of. Uh, people listen to music, kids listen to lyrics, and I use the term kids to refer to anybody who's young at heart. Um, People go to movies and hear dialogue. I already talked about how we've changed attitudes uh, racially and in terms of sexual orientation. So, yeah. That noun, legislators, that struck me as something a bit different that I hadn't heard or seen before. I was hoping... Legislatures by persuasion rather than by edict. Uh Uh, No. He was a romantic poet, by the way, so he gets, gets away with a little romanticism in terms of human nature. Okay, all right. So uh, the other thing I wanted to touch base with you about was this whole concept of, and you kind of alluded to it in a a different kind of way, when I was visiting with Loressa Cable, a visual and performance artist, just about 10 days ago or so. She spoke of what she felt like were walls up around the state of Iowa, that people didn't recognize the energy that the arts have here. And then when I hear you talk about gosh, uh, maybe there's a wall around Des Moines and we're mm-hmm. not really even busting out of that. Uh, she also went on to talk about the need to connect the whole state and talking about energy in different pockets around the state. Mm-hmm. Can you tell me a little bit about what walls you're seeing and in addition to what you just referenced, kind of pulling out of Des Moines and bringing arts other places, mm-hmm. how do we break down these barriers? How do we do this better and better connection of not just... Um, of artist to artist and arts to community. Okay, I'm gonna be a little contrary. I think the literary arts have done a fantastic job coming out of Iowa. If you look at the writers that have come out of Iowa City and you look at how many nationally loved novels are set or partially set in the state of Iowa, Iowa is very well known by people in yeah, New York. Fair or, point. For the writers, it's a different different game, isn't it? I, I think the writers, are, we have a unique, um, advantage in that respect. As a University of Iowa Writers Workshop in large part, I guess I would say. Right, and people came out of that and you get movies. You know, Iowa is romanticized as the flyover state and there's something intriguing about flying over a state. What's going on down there with those ants? And so you get Field of Dreams and things like that. Um, I'm reading a book and I may blow the title. Uh, one uh, 
Pulitzer Prize, uh, the overgrowth, and it's set around trees and the effect trees have on people. And it's like a James Michener book, only written three times better. So we have different populations, and each person's life is integrally changed by the tree or trees in, in, in his or her existence. Um, so I, I see Iowa literature as having a rich impact upon the nation. Um, the, the book about trees I just mentioned, one of the, the main characters, uh, the, f the first set of main characters are, are based in a community near Ames, you know, and a chestnut tree. Is there a path to, um, for lack of a better verb, leverage that uh, literary success uh, to elevate the work of our other artists in this state who are probably not getting the same level of awareness? That's a great question. And I, I, don't, I don't claim to have expertise on how to promote the visual arts. Uh, well, maybe it was kind of an unfair question for you, but I just thought maybe you'd have an idea because you get a lot of good ideas. Uh, um, you know, my sense is uh, University of Iowa for a uh, Midwestern state has an awfully good uh, museum Des Moines has one hell of a museum for a little sleepy Midwestern town. I think the arts are very vibrant here. I, I know when people come to visit us, one of the first things they do without us suggesting is, well, I hear the Des Moines Arts Center is a great place to go. Now, how you get people excited about those artists who aren't being shown in the Des Moines Arts Center or aren't being shown at the University of Iowa, that's hard because I think art... You know, politics is always local. I think art always is kind of local, especially the visual arts. You want to go see it. Uh, so the more we do things like this art week that we're doing, which I think is fantastic, you know, get people into town or get people into the state and have it very accessible where you don't have to uh, make a, a whole day out of going to see a gallery or whatever. Um, I think the arts there to be seen. I think it's up to us to take the other people there. When when they fly over and stop, drag them to the art. And here in in the state, if I heard you right, mm -hmm. we need to go out and about mm -hmm. and do some proactive connecting ourselves. Always, I, I I'm amazed that my my wife has taught me a ton of things, but how political using the word in the Machiavellian sense, an artist needs to be to get their stuff out there to be seen and noticed. Because you have to be seen and noticed before you can be appraised and appreciated. So, so why don't we have one more poem before we have to go, or is it a, is it a poem that you have left to read for me? Sure. And again, I'm, I'm reading stuff that I think will make my next book, but uh, not in my next book. And uh, one quick comment, Nebraska and other states is available on Amazon.com, so feel free to find it. Walk up the ladder, hoist a cherry bucket, and each age-carved hand while you still can. Your neighbor on the tree side of the property line is polishing off her coffee, that ecumenical prayer of the upper Midwest. Not noticing... Puffing on a drink steam while dew still stings your feet. Each fruit in your hand feels like a prayer bead. Feels like a pig's nut. Sighs like a talisman. Sings like a pie. You can imagine it. Crust sime with tender heat like a movie star's bodice. Red sap leaking through the sacramental knife slits. Your stepladder wobbles. The ground beneath it rise with roots and gopher boards. 
You stamp your foot on the rung like a three-year-old, made ecstatic by his own tantrum, the fruit begging for release, lemmings at the cliff, daisies in the field, angels in your palms. So many things you haven't done. Kiss Marilyn. Whizzed outside in the daylight, punched the tyrant blinds, hug your son breathless. Like Zacharias, who climbed a fig tree to see Jesus. Do these simple things. Such trespasses. That's beautiful. What are some of the simple things you have yet to do? Hug my son breathless. Um, all my children. Good to spend more time with them. Just keep doing what I'm doing. I, I am so blessed. Um, you know, this little body is still able to get on the bike and still put on fishing waders. And, um, you know, this mouth is still able to read. Uh you know, for a man pushing 70, I, I'm, you know, you know, maybe there's a picture of me somewhere called Dorian Gray. I don't know. I'm just lucky beyond belief, so just keep doing what I'm doing. Uh, it's amazing in, in biking and fishing how many ideas come to my mind. Yeah, that's my excuse. You know, I, I go there for the thinking. <laughs> well, I hope you keep thinking, keep writing, and keep connecting. Uh, the idea of your involvement in the Art Week has been a very powerful piece for a lot of folks, and so that's a very meaningful thing. Thank you so much for doing that. Thank you. Many thanks to Steve Rose and Crystal Stone, both for the wonderful interviews over the last uh, couple of times and their work in setting up Zanzibar's Coffee Adventure Poetry Readings. And I want to remind everybody about uh, First Friday, July 5th, at Mainframe Studios. This one's called A Distracted Abstract. It's from 5 to 8 p.m. And remember, Mainframe's at 900 KOA, hence the name 900 Views. Uh, and it's really about this week trying to connect emotionally with a piece. So what they write on the website is that attendees are encouraged to find one artwork and pick out a color, a brush stroke, a shape or texture that stands out to them and discuss it with another person. And you'll have an opportunity to discuss that with many of the artists themselves. Also in store is a public coloring wall, an interactive video installation, a special presentation uh, by Distracted Ideas, Mark Kaus and DJ Rose, ISU's Sustainable Environments Exhibit, and music by DJ Episode and DJ Ism, and specialty cocktails with Zayad White Rye. And uh, the website mentions food trucks, so it should be a pretty great event. As always, I really want to thank Rachel at Art Beacon for all her work on Art Week, everyone at Mainframe Studios for their efforts, and of course, my collaborator on this podcast, Alex Cooney. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next time with Mainframe Studios' Julia Franklin from Studio 456. Thanks. Thanks.